Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. All right. Well, welcome in, everyone. Welcome to the Apex Hour. It's the middle of October. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. We are dealing with books and authors today. We have in residence with us Matt Bell, the acclaimed author of Appleseed. And then also joining me in the studio is Todd Peterson, who's been on the show with me before. Welcome in, Matt and Todd. How are you guys? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Doing great. It's a nice afternoon after this week. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we had a big dump of snow earlier this week, uh, like almost 10 inches of snow. And now it's gorgeous and sunny outside. Welcome to Cedar City. So, well, I'd love to get started because we tend to, the three of us, just get in and go. Um, Matt, Appleseed, we've been reading on campus and really enjoying it. And it was on the summer best reading list and everything. Tell our audience, what is Appleseed about? Sure. Um, so thanks so much for, for having me. Uh, Appleseed is a, a thousand year epic speculative environmental novel. Um, it's uh, sort of divided in the past, present, and future. It begins in, in 1799 with a, a mythological retelling of, of Johnny Appleseed and the sort of settling of the Midwest. Um, the, the sort of near future part takes place 50 years from our time. Uh, it's sort of a late climate change America during a plot to geoengineer the stratosphere to deal with climate change. And then there's a third thread of the book set uh, 500, 700 years in the future on a sort of new glacial North America in which a, uh, a single sort of bioengineered clone character is, is making this glacier by himself. Oh my gosh. Okay, that's awesome. <laughs> you, you probably, I mean, there's so much in the book. You probably have that down to a science. We were sort of joking a little bit about the elevator pitch um, right. in, in terms of the genres and terminology. And so it, tell us all the different genres that you feel are in this book. Because I know you yeah. kind of don't really want to be pigeonholed, sure. if it will, but what are all the different genres? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the one way to write a novel is to like fill it full of like all the things you like, right? And I, and I think there's a lot of that in this book. Um, there's parts of it that are, uh, retellings of myths. There's a retelling of, of, uh, Johnny Appleseed folktale, but also of Orpheus and Eurydice and these three kind of, uh, American witches who are also maybe the fates or the furies. So this Greek sort of uh, part of it. Um, there's a science fictional, fictional aspect to the near future and the futuristic part with, um, uh, cloning technology and bioengineering and, uh, nano bees that pollinate super trees designed to live in like late climate change. Uh, there's a heist narrative where these, uh, environmentalist rewilders are trying to stop a, like a mega corporation from, um, from changing the world forever. Um, there's also like the adventure tale kind of crossing of the glacier. There's the, uh, historical sort of settler kind of narrative, um, 
you know, like uh, maybe a little little house in the prairie or something, yeah, you know, yeah. in that sort of aspect. Um, and then there's a lot of like like sort of nature writing in it in a really mm-hmm. sincere kind of straightforward, like just trying to depict like the wonder in the natural world. And you just sort of stew that together yeah. and it becomes the book. Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> stew it together, it becomes the book. Well, Todd, I know that you have tons of things that you want to <laughs> talk with Matt about. And it's such, I love being like the fly on the wall in this conversation to, to let your conversation unfold. So what do you want to talk about? Well, it's important to get people, I think, excited about books and um, excited about this book because it's so interesting and it's so timely. Um, and I think that that's one of the things I wanted to start about, like to have crossed over the entrance of a book into culture at the same time that culture is kind mm. of arriving at a crossroads. Like that's a pretty lucky thing. I think both of us as writers have done that, like hit uh, a moment in history with, with recent works that really lined up. But to get that done, it's almost impossible, mm. right? Like to have started early enough to understand that we would actually come to this climate crossroads just in time for your book to come out. Just like I was like to have a, a um, national monument uh, revocation crossover just at the right time. It's weird. But sometimes my students ask me like, how do you do something that you so that you can write it so that it's timely? Mm. And I And I wonder if you were aware of that as the book was coming out. Like I might be hitting a, a moment i'm doing this thing with my hands like that they'll be intersecting right um so that you can see that but but maybe you can just sort of reflect on that like what did it mean to do this because you it, we knew climate change was coming but we're at a crisis now like yeah. as Appleseed came out this is when these international announcements mm-hmm. of the severity of the situation hit yeah i mean i it's it's sort of obvious that the preference would be that by the time I finished the book, it would have been solved, right? And that it would not be timely. It'd be like, why did this guy write this book about this thing that isn't a problem anymore? Um, would always be sort of the preference. Um, I'm I'm blanking on the novelist's name right now, but the the novelist wrote uh, Schindler's List talked about um, oh Thomas Canali. Thank you very much. Uh, talked about how like the one task of the artist might be to see the thing that in 30, 40 years, someone will say like, why, why weren't we all talking about it? Right, sort right. of evil in your time that people miss. Um, and, and so maybe that's some of what both of us are doing that way. Um, I mean, in some ways it seems unignorable, like, you know, to, to write, to love the natural world and to love, I mean, you love the human world and not care about climate change would be, um, ridiculous. But, uh, but there are, it is interesting to enter a place where like people are ready to have the conversation in your book is, is entering, which I don't think always happens. You know, even when you're writing something that is important, it's not always where the conversation's at. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things that's been most interesting to me in like reviews or coverage or interviews like this is the way that people are thinking already on top of and past the book, you know, like sort of some of the things people wrote about the book were like the next phase of thinking from it which is really what you hope it does is like enable people to like think toward the future as opposed to just like the lament the present we touched up on this a little earlier about this idea of of action and i have a quote that that is from Derek Jensen that you've used mm-hmm. um, in past interviews that every, mo- every morning I wake up and ask, should I write or should I blow up a dam? And every day I choose to write. And in talking about, and that's from a language older than words, yeah, worlds. Um, and, and so this idea of uh, being a writer and how is that action and um, your the way you think about taking action in terms of the environmental concept, um, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of your thinking and did this book change that or just satisfy your need for yeah. action in a way? Um, I think, 
Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, like, you write books as opposed to doing other things because you're a writer, right? You know, right. I mean, there are other parts of my life that are, you know, activists in different ways, but the main activity that I participate in is writing. And so my, my concerns come out that way. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we always have that feeling like, could we be doing more? But we also, we work with the things we, 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 the talents we have. Um, but I do think my thinking, changed in different ways that I was writing. Like one of the sort of obvious ways was just that I didn't know everything I thought when mm -hmm. I started, right? I didn't, hadn't done all the research. So the book is an occasion to, to think and to feel too. Um, I think, uh, I don't know that I understood as much the way, like the root causes of, of climate change, um, which to me are, are in like super broad strokes. Um, uh, capitalism and, and colonialism you know i sort of didn't understand that in the same way i do now so there's one part that's like coming to a, an understanding of and saying i now know how we got here i knew like the ideas and the stories and the the theories that brought us to this moment um and then i also sort of learned you know the the dangers of climate change is to feeling nihilistic or feeling like there's nothing to be done so let's not do anything or we don't know what we should do so maybe we should wait a little longer even though we're kind of out of time um but the the reality is like the climate scientists have known for a long time what we could do to to make the situation better and what we should have done maybe like 40 years ago or like really any second now um and uh and also like what we might have to do in the future so like i really came out of it being like oh the solution is known like people feel sort of paralyzed by this but like we're paralyzed because we're we're sort of um, the waters are purposely muddied around us. Mm -hmm. But the, if we listen to the right people, uh, we listen to people who've been studying this and thinking about this, the environmental activists, the, the philosophers, the scientists, like we could act tomorrow if we were willing. And that actually feels fairly hopeful to me that we're not up against an unknown sort of adversary or something. Like mm -hmm. actually, like it's really clear some of what we could start to do at mm -hmm. least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Todd, did you have something? Well, and I wonder too if one of the powers of a book it couldn't – I don't think a book would change everybody on its own. Right. But maybe one of the things we need um, when we're addressing large, huge planetary scale things is to hear it from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. So I would hope that there would be great climate change um, rock and roll, sure. you know, and great climate change children's cartoons or whatever so that we can hear all these things from as many different perspectives as possible. The book perspective, the Appleseed perspective is one good way to help – connect back mm -hmm. into information that we're hearing from all different sources, news sources or from the UN um, committees that come together and issue the um, recommendations that we hear or warnings that we hear. Because if you hear it from one place all the time and see people who've tuned it out, maybe mm -hmm. they can't be reclaimed, but then they hear it again from this other kind of book. Maybe they get tricked into it. I like science fiction. I'm going to read this thing. Oh, hey, wait, I need to be thinking about this now. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what the great um, writers have done all along that have mm -hmm. been working in this area. Like, I'm just going to tell you the story and then see if you just kind of get brought in um, a little bit closer and a little bit closer with the story until maybe a mind can be changed. Because persuading people is really hard. Mm -hmm. If they don't want to, it usually doesn't even work. Right. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how can art um, or a book start to change people's hearts and their minds so that that action can follow? Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, I agree with all of that. It's one of the reasons that I think, uh, that art and storytelling and, and music and other things are sort of interesting for this is because when, when we're argued with, we harden in our own positions most of the time. And so other ways might, might be able to do that. Um, I think one of the, the tricks of fiction and is sort of a thing you can play with on a craft level is that we're trained as readers to identify with the protagonist. 
Like the person, you know, the protagonist has wants and the story is about how they get those wants. And, and as the reader, you get on board with the wants, kind of whatever they are. Like that's, you just start trained to be on board with the protagonist. And there's interesting things you can do with that. But one of them is just like, if you're reading books about characters who are trying to make the world better, you're reading books about people who are trying to protect some part of the natural world or try to, uh, protect, uh, people who are endangered by climate change or something. Like then those, then you start having this like pattern in your brain of like, that as a goal and a person who's gone through and a person who's tried to make that better. And it seems to me like that's, that's going to, it's going to change the way you think. It's going to change what you think of as like goals people could have. Um, and, uh, and so maybe that's one thing that, you know, in Appleseed, like each of the characters is trying to protect something or trying to make the world better in their way or trying to find like a way of sort of improving the world as they understand it in their time. Mm-hmm. And like, that's, that's, a pretty good maybe habit of mind to take away from it, right? Like, like, um, to see, like, to improve the world in your time and your understanding is like a goal a person might have. Seems fine. Cool. Well, that's a perfect, th- what an interesting conversation so far. That's a perfect lead in to, um, some of the music I have today. Um, so in our research, uh, we, we found that you really like to write to music and then it's kind of, uh, electronic drone movie scores, this kind of thing. So I was looking around and finding some things and there's an artist. I wouldn't say it's actually electronic, but it's an Icelandic artist that I wanted to share named Olafur Arnolds. And um, this piece is called Loom, which I thought was perfect because there's that in Appleseed. So we're going to listen to that. This is Loom um, by Olafur Arnolds. Uh, you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. <laughs> Thank you. 
All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. That song is called Loom, uh, and it's by Olafur Arnold. Um, I just love that music box ending. It sort of disintegrates from this a little more sort of electronic kind of sound into this beautiful little innocent music box towards the end. Um, I am in the studio with authors, plural, uh, Matt Bell of Appleseed and Todd Peterson, whose most recent novel, Picnic in the Ruins, is just one of my favorite reads of the of this year and last year, I think. So welcome back, guys. Yay. Um, we are getting into we were talking about what to where to go next in terms of Appleseed and talking about that. Um, and one of the things that I was really intrigued about were the relationships uh, in in the mm-hmm. book. Um, and so I'd love to sort of start with the issue of brotherhood, you know, and talk about maybe um, share with us the, a little bit how that relationship developed it's uh, particularly between Chapman and Nathaniel it's a very complex mm-hmm. brotherhood relationship and I wonder if you could kind of talk about your uh, development of that exploration what was what was surprising to you if anything what was like oh wow I really want to do this and mm. maybe just get into that a bit yeah Lynn thanks so much um, you know I uh, the historical John Chapman who Johnny Appleseed is is the folk tales about um, had several siblings including a, a younger brother named Nathaniel who did some planting with him um, and so, uh, it didn't really seem to fit for Nathaniel to be my Chapman's younger brother. So I should have made him an older brother so that he could be sort of the leader of their sort of project. Um, and it took me a little while to figure out the relationship. Uh, my first two novels, both, uh, in large part are like a person wandering around a landscape by themselves while bad things happen. And I was like, people have to be in like communities in this book and people have to be parts of groups. Um, and so I, I, the brother was a way of sort of solving that and having another human person to sort of interact with, even in the wilderness. But in the early drafts, I couldn't figure Nathaniel out. So I kept, um, so I do this thing, uh, when I'm drafting where rather than go back and fix things, when I change my mind, I just go forward mm. as if I have changed my mind huh. so that like this, if you fix something, the second half, it'll be fixed. Then you only have to fix the first half later. Um, so I would be like, uh, Nathaniel's in and I'd write scenes with Nathaniel and they'd be like, Nathaniel's a mistake. And I would write scenes without him. And so he was sort of like haunting, like the early drafts of this book, like did he exist or not almost, um, in a weird way, but it became, eventually became clear that he was doing work and they should be there together. Um, and it, it also took me a little while to figure out how they saw their project differently, like how they saw this project of planting the trees differently. And eventually I understood that Nathaniel is sort of really more like the historical Johnny Appleseed in which he has this entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. sort of bent to their project. And Chapman is doing it from a... um, uh, a sort of spiritual, personal, mythological quest sort of way, trying to grow like a new version of the tree that was in the Garden of Eden. Um, and so that clarified them a little bit. You could sort of have them on this track where one of them had like uh, a kind of a manifest destiny approach to the wilderness and one of them was unsure of his place in the human or non-human. Uh, but I think like a lot of relationships you want to see in fiction, you want to see them complicate and change and reverse and people in different positions. Right. And so, you know, Nathaniel's the older brother and he cared for Chapman who's younger. The whole project is so that Chapman, this half human character has like a place to be. Yes. Um, and then uh, later in the book, when when Nathaniel's aging and he's he's become sort of an alcoholic, I mean, not right. sort of, he's become an alcoholic, yeah. and he he like Chapman is caring for him and, and giving up things for him, and sort of that sort of uh, the way a, a familial relationship sort mm-hmm. of has stages and has those sort of things. Um, and I would say I, I don't I know this too long of a radio answer, but um, my uh, 
my I'm the oldest of, of five kids and my relationship with my brother, she was younger than me, was really close um, and is really close. Um, when I was writing uh, some memoir stuff, I wrote in another book, um, I had all these childhood memories that like I couldn't figure out. They like had holes in them. And I would talk to my brother about them and he'd be like, well, I mean, like, the reason this doesn't make sense is because you've forgotten that I was there. And like, and he would tell me what he did there and it would come together. It was over and over. And what I realized was that like, he was so omnipresent in my early life that I'd, I'd like from forgetting to remember oxygen or sunshine. Yeah. I'd forgot to remember brother, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that, that made me really sort of aware of that, you know, like the sort of, uh, the relationship that close that's like lifelong and sort of omnipresent. And Chapman and Nathaniel are mostly like that. They're like, they're the other person's like, whole of humanity for much of the book. Oh my gosh, that gives us so much more insight. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. I was curious about what your familial sort of background yeah. was and how that played out. There's there's one just thing that I want to uh, drill down a little bit in there is that when you were talking about their different approaches, you know, mm-hmm. at basically to to the project and to life. Um there's a there's a quote and uh, in one of the chapters or there's one sentence that the idea that you wish to be god mm-hmm. and it's so interesting because they're both kind of doing that you mm-hmm. know and i wonder if you might talk about that back end in yeah. where they kind of both sides of that coin yeah i think um uh you know i, I was uh raised uh catholic and and was a very very devout catholic for much of my life uh early life and um and I, I think for whatever reason, a lot of those sort of the Bible stories are really sort of, you know, deep in my sort of imaginative DNA still. And I, I think I've written maybe like three novels in a row that are in some way in conversation with the idea of like stewardship and dominion sort of over the earth or over, over other animals or other people, um, that are in Genesis. And, and so that's part of this too, this idea of like making the earth productive or like making, you know, um, going forth and multiplying, like some of those sort of like yeah. Genesis ideas are, are, are baked into all this stuff we're talking about. But I think those are, are Nathaniel's ideas, especially this idea of like the productive earth. Um, and Chapman shares those on his sort of human side. And then in his, his sort of wilder side, I think he sees the way that, that animals and, and plants exist in the world, which the, the term the book uses is like self-willed, like mm-hmm. a thing that like lives only to be itself and for itself. And, but isn't trying to like, like the there's a, a meaningful encounter with like this elk herd in the book. Like the yeah. elk aren't trying to like dominate some other species or something, right? That there's just nothing like that in in, in the wild world. But there's divinity in that yeah. existence, of course. Right. Yeah. Right. And so like, isn't it enough just to like be what you are yeah, right? without right. ruling everything else? Right. And that sort of question of the of the book is is yeah. definitely in all three of the storylines in different ways. Thank you. Yeah. And in your earlier today, you talked a little bit about um, the lineage into this. Uh, to like Wendell Berry or yeah. Annie Dillard plus science fiction. And that's a big Wendell Berry approach, right? Mm-hmm. To talk about, yes, maybe um, the United States and its manifestacity, listen to the um, subdue the earth right. part of the Bible, but not the replenish it mm-hmm. part. And that seems to be really, I mean, part of the whole project, right? right. Between the brothers, like maybe maybe there's these two forces that are playing and maybe that's what we have playing across the culture all the time. Mm-hmm. What is the motivation to fulfill this, you know, whatever mandate for believing Christians, but followed up by missing the fact that one has to take care of what you've got, right? Yeah. Tending the garden was one of the Mm -hmm. things um, that was kind of key to that. And if that's a mythological structure for so many people here, you said in your kind of imaginative DNA, maybe it's for other people and it's a 
a point of contact. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, I think um, uh, there's a part late in the book when in time sort of passing, like Chapman's part goes through time the most and uh, decades have passed and they're seeing like the, they get to see some of the, the, the future that they made. And they see some of this environmental devastation that's already happening in the 1800s, which is just historically correct. You know, that's sort of like Ohio where their planting was um, depleted of sort of like uh, uh, like deer and things like that. And it had to be restocked. They were restocking deer in the woods in Ohio in 1850. You know, before the Civil War, they were like out of deer, um, which is hard to even sort of think about in some ways. Um, and and so it's I think like Nathaniel has more of a, he doesn't want the world to be like like totally totally extracted or totally sort of made human either, right? And he sort of encounters people who do and is offended by it and sort of um, like, this isn't what I thought we were making. And I, I feel like it's okay to meet that moment where you're like, this is what I was trying to do. And now what do I do? Because the future I made was not the one I intended. Now, there's another relationship I wanted to ask you about or, or collective relationships. So Nathaniel and Chapman are a fem family based relationship that have ideological differences. But what about, uh, the group in the John storyline who have, who were more of an ideological brotherhood mm. in a way? Um, I wonder if you might talk about the relationships in that group and, and the ideologies and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So there's this group of sort of, rewilders who who are you know ex-scientists and programmers and and some ex-military folk who are sort of resisting this like a global company that's uh planning to geoengineer the stratosphere and you know i think the the found family is like one of the great sort of like like story shapes right like yeah. and, and i think science fiction and fantasy are full of found families like we're so attracted to that for sort of obvious reasons for how many of us need a found family in our in our real lives um and this is both like that and it is like a group with a very specific purpose. And, um, and there's, there is both like the big shared purpose of like stopping this, this geoengineering event from happening. And inside that are like fractures on like the how and the why mm -hmm. and, and the for who. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, um, they get to hold a lot of the, the different responses to the sort of maybe like, more dominant culture, like sort of capitalist techno utopian kind of thing that Yuri Mirov sort of represents. And there's sort of a variety of approaches to it. Um, but I, I think the found family is a, an amazing sort of shape. And I think that it is so wonderful to sort of be in contact with one in, in a story, um, because we find that so moving and we're so lucky when we find ourselves in those units in our own lives. Cool. Todd, you were sort of talking about the John Yuri, uh, relationship. Mm. And did you want to kind of go, go with Matt on that for a bit? Well, now that you sort of brought up the concept of the found family, I think that that's – it's so interesting in the plot line yeah. of of that John sequence, which is it seems like it's an adversarial relationship. But it, it once you realize that John and Yuri – and it's probably giving some stuff away, but you maybe it will just make it all a bit more interesting – that when they come together – my first thought was, oh, no, this is a person who's kind of trying to come in like a Bond villain, mm -hmm. you know, and say, you know, we found you. We know that you're one of these people. But then all it's like, now let's remember all the work that we've done together in the past. And I think that that's, that's a new and interesting thing. Like there's an existing relationship that's uncovered. One person has gone one direction and mm -hmm. one person has gone another, which is, again, I think a thing that happens. I mean, it's happened to me like, um, like class reunions and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, yeah. well, where were you? 
And then like, oh, well, now I'm an English professor. And people are like, what? Right. right. <laughs> How did you go that route? And I'm and like, you're a stockbroker. And I'm like, what? Like, you were the pothead skateboarder. I don't understand how we went <laughs> these places. But that I started to kind of track along because it is a little bit of a thriller right. when we go through that section. But it's also, there's this really interesting character work that's going on, which is usually not what a thriller does. Usually a thriller is plot-based mm. and event-based. But then when you start to bring in these characters, it enriches it in another way. And we were talking earlier today about how the difference between like speculative fiction and scientific fiction and what's literary and what's not. But I think this character mm. attention is literary, and it's not just fancy language. So that was kind of what I noticed in that relationship. And I wonder, was that conscious, or was it just like did it seem natural and it emerged from the writing process? or? No, I mean, yeah, some of it's probably discovered, but I, I do think I, um, it, I think it's really important to me as like a writer of like climate fiction mm-hmm. or writing about climate change that p- people who are trying to do something about climate change are not mm-hmm. villains. Like, so right, like Yuri is the antagonist in that part of the novel, but she's not the villain, right? Right. Like she has a vi- her own vision of how she's trying to make the world a better place. And she's using the tools she has available to her, which is like, uh, technology and capitalism and political power. And she's like acquired those specifically to do this thing. And so, um, and so that's really interesting to me. I think of, jo- I think John, the key to John's character that was eventually clear to me was that he was a, a good person who wanted to do the right thing. Like he would give his life for the right thing. And he was unsure of what the right thing was. And, and Cal and the sort of other like resistance group members present one way forward and Yuri presents another way. And I think he's almost like convinced by whoever he's standing closest to. Right. You know, when he's right. with Cal, it's this. And he's with Yuri, it's this. And everything Yuri says to him is, is right from a certain point of view. Like she doesn't, her argument is, is, is absolutely the argument people are making now about doing these things and will make in the future. Like, um, when Andrew Yang ran for president, his, his climate platform was geoengineering. And he was like, I mean, this, he is coming from that technocratic yeah. sort of technology. Yeah. We'll have the technology to solve it. Yeah. We won't have to change anything else. Um, and you all won't have to worry about it. Right. We'll, 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 it'll be handled. It'll be we'll handled. Take care of it. We'll yeah. take care of it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but I, I do think that sort of push and pull, like in many ways, it's, it's, John get, gets to be the, the guy in the room with the button at some point in the book, you know, mm-hmm. but it's really, Yuri and Yuri and Cal who have who have primed him for that and I I loved writing those conversations with him and Yuri because he's gone there to like convince Yuri that she's wrong and he doesn't come out of it he doesn't win right he doesn't mm-hmm, come out of it convincing mm-hmm. her and he's no longer sure of his own path mm-hmm. by the time he he gets there there's another like a different order of events in which they saw him before the last act of the book and the book ends a different way right right, right. Um, could be yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So this is good storytelling, though, because as you said, we we align with pro, a protagonist. We have a number of yeah. them. But then, rather than representing a position, John is someone who moves between positions. Yeah. And I think that that's really good for people to feel. I mean, if we're mm-hmm. trying to get people to think about this and say, you can only believe one thing, one of th- that section really reveals how difficult the decisions yeah. are. That, I think, would feel real to other people rather mm-hmm. than this ideological purity thing. Yeah. Humans had no involvement. Humans had all the involvement. Right. Humans can't do anything or whatever. It seems like ideological purity has created the political system that we have now, yeah. which is nothing yeah. happens. It locks up. But by moving between, then you have a dynamic system, which is an ecosystem, right? right. And so this is what your book's able to do, is is let us follow John and see the triumphs mm. and the frustrations of the moment. Yeah. That's how I read it. And it yeah. was enjoyable yeah. to do it that way. You know, one of the... 
I, yeah, I love all of that. And I, I think one of the, the books is in the way back of the influence in this, which I, which I haven't reread in 20 years, probably, as, uh, uh, Jack Kerouac's Desolation Angels. And I don't know if you read that, but it, no, uh, so, that deep no, it's your... great, right? Um, but, uh, in that, Kerouac's, you know, the, the character's him, right? Is like, uh, in a fire watch station in, in Colorado, you know, and he's outside of Denver for spends the summer just like spotting fires. Um, and, and so he's all by himself and he's just reading and writing and he has this like, like purity of thought and feeling when he's by himself. And then he, the summer ends and he comes down into Denver and he's so happy to see his friends again. And when he's in the real world with other people, it gets messy. Yeah. You know, and there's sort of like John in the wilderness at the beginning is like, this is how I feel about things and this is what's right. Right. And then as soon as you're in the world with other people, it's complicated. Yeah. And like what's right for everyone is, is an almost impossible thing to decide as a person. And especially in conversation with, the people you're deciding for yeah, or, or yeah. with. Um, and I think, I, you know, it wasn't something I thought about constantly, but I know that shape is part of the shape of this book, like the sort of like uh, alone in the wilderness to community with people or with the natural world or like what does it mean when your your ideas and your morals and your own wants have yeah. to like be in conversation with other people's. Fantastic. Which gets us to see, which gets to explore what happens when you're in this environment. Yeah alone or maybe not yeah. or whatever yeah, yeah. well let's take a musical break and then come back and talk about c mm. we haven't talked about c so much today no. either this morning or now so this will be the time well i have another song from olafar arnold's the the icelandic multi-instrumentalist and it's sort of along the same lines it's called woven song um and again going with this loom idea which perfectly fits for what we're going to talk about next with a uh, c the character who is woven and remade mm. uh time and again so take a listen to woven song you're listening to ksuu thunder 91.1 
Welcome back. You are listening to KSU Youth under 91.1. That song is Woven Song, and the artist is Olafur Arnolds. Um, and just a reminder, if you're interested in any of the music that we play on the Apex Hour, there is a Spotify playlist called Played on Apex Hour. It's a public playlist on Spotify. You can also find it on our website, which is suu.edu slash apex, and you can click on the podcast button and find all of our episodes and also the Spotify playlist. So welcome back into the studio authors, Todd Peterson and Matt Bell. We are talking about uh, Matt's most recent book called Appleseed, and we've covered a lot of the storylines that are in it, but there's a really special storyline that I'm anxious to get into, and that is the character of C, um, one through 400 and whatever. (laughs) Uh, So I wondered if you could just kind of introduce us a little bit to C, and let's dig in from there. Yeah, so uh, the third storyline takes place 700 years in the future, and the sort of Top of begins atop a glacier that's sort of covering half of North America. And uh, C starts with C-432, um, is a uh, cloned bioengineered creature. So like like uh, the fawn, Chapman has horns and hooves, but like has blue fur and parts of them are made out of plastic and metal. And he's sort of this, this kind of uh, combined thing. Um, and he's scavenging below the glacier for like sort of biomaterials from from the the cult before the collapse, I guess, um, that he's using to sort of fuel his uh, longevity. So every time he gets hurt or injured or sick, he sort of recycles and reprints himself. And then there's a, a device called the rung that's implanted in his neck that contains all of his memories of his past life. So he's lived 432 lives at the beginning of the novel. Um, and then the next life, 433, is, has most of it. And, um, and I don't think this is really a spoiler because it happens pretty early in the book, but the, the thing that really prompts this storyline is, uh, uh, when 433 is, is sort of reprinted, something's different, and this tree starts growing out of his body. Um, and, and the, that part of the novel becomes about his care for the tree, um, that's, that's taking over part of his body and awesome trying to deliver it to this, uh, place in, uh, Nevada where he thinks the, there might still be like a remnant of, of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad you both like C. I think, uh, C's really finds his people and there's people who like, like, that's like the, like the emotional heart. And I, I feel really tender towards C. Um, I think his, his reverence and care for the, for the tree growing on his body, I find just deeply moving. Like he'd just do anything for it, you know? It's yeah. sort of, there's one other living thing in the world and he would do whatever it cost to take care of it. It's such a world reduced, but like at full, like moral responsibility. So the C character set up a, a bunch of complex things for me because I'm a parent and an English teacher, and I'm a student of uh, Brian Evanson, who oftentimes write about these characters that are kind of trapped in their own worlds and their mm-hmm. own selves, and they're trying to define what they see, but maybe they, they're doing it with complete lack of understanding, mm-hmm. right? Like each moment that a character moves forward, they're redefining themselves mm-hmm. and what the world they see is. So I see this all kind of playing. So it's, sometimes I'm seeing C – as like a Samuel Beckett character. Sometimes I'm seeing C as like Wally, 
Yeah. You know, yeah. and and all of those things I think move across those spaces for me because of the things that I've picked up. Um, but it's really kind of an experimental approach that's that's again braided into this mm-hmm. this thing. So can you talk a little bit about how C um, exists, not just as a, as a character and we take them realistically, but you know maybe as a function of language or a function of thinking, um, or or just something that sees asking us to think about as a possibility of life that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, thank you for that. I, you know, I think one of the things that I had to figure out as I was writing C was like what he knew and didn't know, and he has this sort of uh, cause of the remainder, so this recombinant version of all the other people. Um, and in some versions of of the early drafts, they were like like numbers of them spoke really directly as opposed to them being kind of like a swarm like they are now. Um, you know, just trying to figure out how much knowledge he had about the world. And I ended up sort of in this place you're talking about, like actually pretty little, pretty little, you know, he has this very constrained world and he knows how to live in it so that he can keep going on. But his life is only about going on mm-hmm. and has no other content. Which and, by the way, that's where the Beckett stuff. Yeah, is, absolutely. Right? Yeah, I can't yeah. go on. I must go yeah. on or I will go on. Yeah. And, and that's, that's such a core idea there. And I, I just maybe I pipe that into. No, I think that's right. Yeah, but it's it's there and it's really compelling. Yeah, thank you. And you know, I think the other thing we've we've talked about a little bit off air is, um, you know, every story has kind of a slightly different style to it. And one of the things I decided for C was that uh, that he didn't have points of comparison. He didn't have experiences outside of his little world. Um, I almost said bubble, but he rolls around in this bubble yeah, craft. Right. So not his bubble, but his <laughs> bubble. Um, and uh, and so there aren't any, as far as I know, there are not similes or metaphors in his section. And I, I remember writing a part where he's eating this like nutrient paste he lives on. And it was just like, uh, the paste tastes like paste. And I was like, oh, right. Like the only thing he has to compare things to is their, themselves. So sort of this elemental sort of thing. I love that. Um, to, yeah, which made him an interesting sort of character. Like almost, there's, I mean, Simile and metaphor rely on like individual memory and c- cultural memory, right? Mm-hmm. You're sort of a thing people will know when you make a comparison. Um, and so a person incapable of comparison is incapable of memory or history or connection in a certain way. Um, and, uh, and that changes as he gets out into the world on his quest with his tree. But, uh, but I think it was an interesting place to start that he'd been robbed of, of memory and history in a way that the other characters had not been. Yeah. Fascinating. Is he then sort of a metaphor for the future in general? Like, will the future know what produced it? I don't know. Do we know what produced it? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, we're always a little history blind. I never think I'm, – I'm such a bad allegorist. I never think any of this stuff is an allegory for anything. We're always <laughs> like, what does this symbolize? And I'm like, no, it's just a bear. People like, you have know, been asking like, you know, all day. day. You know? <laughs> what is the apple? What is the yeah, apple? <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it's great because I often feel like those are actually the questions. Those are questions for the reader, right? Right, you know? of course, and yeah. One of the, one of the things that – uh, that I do in revision, um, and I'm going to talk to your class about revision a little bit, but one of my favorite tricks is I go through and I highlight everywhere in the book I explained something, and then I try to take it all out. Just Really? I, yeah, because as I'm writing, I'm thinking on the page. So a lot of that explanation is really for me, and the explanation is like a record of my own experience of the book in some right. ways. And so you clear it out and then the reader gets to have an experience of the book. And so those questions sometimes where someone says, I don't know if I get this. Is this what you meant? And I'm like, well, it's, that's your, you're describing your experience. Right. And you don't need me to validate it in right. that way. Like, and it's exciting. Like the, the, what is the, what is the apple or, or what is the tree or, or what is he a, a metaphor for? It's like, 
I don't know. What is he a metaphor for, Todd? And like your answer is is your answer, and I feel Absolutely. great about that. So you could you could say one thing, and you could say another, Lynn, and I would say yes. Right. Right. It's not yeah. either or. It's it's you know all these and and it might change over time as people read it. Oh God, hopefully people are reading in the future. But like as people read it from like a different time or a different yeah. place or a different yeah. cultural position, right? Right. What is the person reading Appleseed 25 years from now yeah. or 25 years in the past? It's a lot like music performance. I would love that person read it 25 years in the past. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot like music performance. You right. know, when we're on stage and we're feeling something or we're putting a certain story into something, uh-huh. the audience never knows that. Right. So they'll say, you know, they'll they'll ask about it, but it's not about that. It's about what you're feeling when you're reading right. it or when you're experiencing it. So I love that that's, that's how you feel about it. Yeah. Cool. One of I, my professors um, said that all um, books have a fourth dimensional quality, mm-hmm. which is when you read them, yeah. they mean different things. Yeah. yeah. And uh, this is like, bang, and my whole head exploded. But it's really smart. And this is a person who taught Shakespeare, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, look, if Shakespeare were alive now, he'd be writing MASH. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, well, wait a minute. Yes, that's correct. Right. And so the, 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 the time in which the work was produced and the time in which it's consumed, I mean, there's a whole thing on reception theory that's right. fancy talk. But this is really what we're talking about is when when you do this. Yeah. I mean, the ways that I'm, I'm a lover of like myths and fairy tales and and um, and the way that they just mean different things in different eras. We're not even talking about like when you retell them in a different era. They're just like mm-hmm. you read them through a different lens. You know, it's it's reading I read uh, Edith Hamilton's mythology, you know, it's one of those classic sort of collections. Sophomore Jesuit oh, High my School. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so good. And I reread it this uh, year or two ago. And, um, and Hamilton uses the same phrase over and over, which I won't be able to say directly for like, um, there's all these women who, who take their own lives in, in the Greek myths because something a man does or <laughs> departs or occasionally tells them to. I mean, it's sort of a wild thing, right? right? right. And like, as when I read that in 1992 or something, like then even, I'm not sure I noticed that, right? And then reading it in, in 2019, I was like, oh, like these, 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 these are obviously like, Women characters are not given their due, or they're sort of written on a story in this sort of way, and like no one listening to maybe not no one. I, my guess is the dominant listener to it when they were written did not react negatively to that at all. Right, and, right. But like right. I don't think I would hope no one reading it in 2021 would fail to notice that these uh, women characters' agency is just sort of like stripped from them yeah. as the stories but, proceed. But the words are unchanged. Right, that's right. That's cool. what I mean. Like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. The print so yeah, stayed fixed. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, I have one more song to play. And then again, once again, the hour has flown by. Um, the last song I have is the same, the same artist, Olafar Arnold, who is Icelandic and I think it's really interesting. And, um, this last song is titled Spiral. Uh, so again, kind of that spinning of history and just sort of bringing it back to all the interwoven stories of Appleseed. So please enjoy Spiral. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1.
All right. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Apex Hour. That song was Spiral by Olafar Arnold. We are back for our last few minutes here at the Apex Hour, which is one of my favorite times. And that is the what's turning you on this week time. So I'm going to ask both of my guests, Matt Bell and Todd Peterson, what's turning them on this week. So I would like to know, Matt Bell, what is turning you on this week? Uh, thanks. Uh, you know, I think uh, I've been really excited by the book I'm reading right now, which is Alexander Kleeman's Something New Under the Sun, which sort of a uh, uh, L.A. noir sort of Chinatown climate fiction child actor mystery kind of oh thing. It's really gosh, great. I love it. Um, I'm really enjoying that. And, uh, and you know, watching, I, I'm excited about the Why the Last Man adaptation that's going on right now, oh, yeah, which I, yeah, yeah. I loved those comics so much. Um, and, they, and they did maybe need some, like, desperate updating for our times. And this seems to be uh, so far so good on that. And I'm really excited about it. Oh, those are two great picks. Thank you for those. I can't wait to put them in my next up. Todd Peterson, what's turning mm. you on this week? On the book front, I'm uh, diving into Colson Whitehead's new book, Harlem Shuffle. Oh, yeah. Um, Colson Whitehead is the impossible Wunderkind, who's like won the Pulitzer Prize twice in, a, in yes. like a row, yes, um, with uh, Underground Railroad and the Nickel Boys. But he's got this new one that's that's kind of like funny, yeah. but it's a heist book. Yeah, it's like a it's like a Harlem 1960s heist book, and it has all the great feelings, and it's really great. And it, you know, it's a relief because he's written about some serious things in the past, also oh. zombies. Mm-hmm. So he's amazing. I didn't know it was a heist book. Yeah, and and it it's a. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, cool. And uh, on on the watching front, I'm, I'm a little late to the game, but just so excited about it. I've been watching Barry, oh. the Bill Hader show. Mm-hmm. It's it's right up in my wheelhouse of like sort of funny crime, but sort of serious at the same time and yeah. almost like back to back. So I've been watching it and like taking notes and going, these rotten people are so this is so good good. Um, and so my wife is like aren't you finished with your work so we can watch Barry because we have you know how you have that Mm -hmm, watching relationship mm -hmm. oh yeah if I watch Barry on my own I'm a dead man yes Well, those are both fabulous. Thank you more for my list of things to read and things to watch and things to consume. So, well, that takes us to the end of our time together. I'm Todd, Matt, thank you so much. The book, well, both of your books, Picnic in the Ruins, Todd Peterson, I love. And then Appleseed with our guest who's visiting us this week, Matt Bell. Go check it out anywhere that you find your reading materials. That's it for every us, everyone. Thank you so much. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.